Quick disclaimer, there is some stronger-than-usual violence at the end of this week's episode. Please see the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of Kilhook and Alwyn from Welsh folklore. We'll see how witch blood is, apparently, a wonderful leaving conditioner for your beard, and how you should always keep a few poison spears next to your office chair. The creature this week is a little monster snake that gets mistaken for a celebrity monster snake, and that just makes it sad. This is Myths and Legends, episode 345, Fetch Quest. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins, and others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, we're back in Welsh folklore, with stories from the Mabinogion. And today's story, while technically more of a King Arthur story than any, this is Welsh King Arthur, the original King Arthur. This does exist outside of our current narrative and what the story of King Arthur had grown into in English and French tales. Today, we're going back to Wales with a mystical, bizarre, and wonderful love story that includes entirely too much attempted murder. Hey, so, um, weird thing maybe, but I found your baby, the swineherd said as he held up the baby. It had been a strange decade for the people of Clid's kingdom. And by the way, the name of this king is like the one name I was not able to get help with this week. So sorry if that's super incorrect or if all of them are. The people were all super invested in the king and queen having an heir. So the whole country prayed constantly. If the queen thought that the entire land pinning all their hopes on this and keeping up to date and being critical of every single bit of news that came out of the palace was stressful, well she only had to wait until she became pregnant. Infant mortality in the Middle Ages was shockingly high, like 20 to 30%. Everyone was coming at her with tips and things to do and not do, and why was she doing that? Didn't she care about the baby? And she snapped. Unable or unwilling to take all that, she ran off. No one knew where she went until she returned without any memory of what happened. Yeah, I, I watched the whole thing. The swineherd explained, some years later, after the birth. Miracle of life. She gave birth right there in the pig run. That's why we named him Kilhook, the swineherd said. You named my son Pigsty? King Clid asked. Well, I mean, the mother just ran off, and it was kind of a temporary name, and until it wasn't. Do you, do you want him back? The swineherd asked. Yes. Okay. Uh, definitely do. The king said, the, the swineherd said, okay, that sounds like a lot of prefacing and not a lot of, yes, I want my son back. The king held up his hands. Now, just now, wasn't a great time. But he's your kid, the prince, the swineherd said. And you've done a fantastic job of raising little pigsty. It's official. You're the royal foster parents to the prince. Yay! The, the swineherd was confused. Okay, I mean... Clid was his king, so he didn't have much of a choice at all, but okay? So, later, then? Yes, later, definitely, King Clid said. And the servants ushered the swineherd from the room. The king barely made it. And as soon as the door closed, 
he broke down. For as much as he loved Kilhook, he couldn't see the toddler right now. He couldn't bear to think of his late wife, his queen. It hurt too much. You're gonna want another wife, the queen had said on her deathbed. King Clyde said, um, too soon? Could they not talk about this right now, please? The queen took her husband's hand. This was the time she had to talk about it. There might not be a tomorrow for her, so she needed to settle her affairs now. The king agreed to listen and abide, and she told her husband they had a child out there, she saw him in half-remembered dreams. He would come to his father one day. She could feel it. When the king remarried, he needed to be careful that his son was ready to face what the world would have for him, that the woman the king married wouldn't use him as a pawn. The queen asked her husband not to remarry until a two-headed briar grew on her grave. He, not wanting to think of remarrying or her grave, agreed, if only for them to speak of something anything else. The queen had passed quietly, with Clid by her side. A few weeks later, the swineherd showed up with the boy that the king couldn't even think of as his son, by his late queen. The years passed, though, and the pain faded. He still missed her, but it got easier and easier each spring. He found a way not to forget her, but to celebrate and appreciate the time they had for what it was. The time came when he could look back on her with joy. The sorrow was still there, but it had healed. One morning, while he walked by the graveyard, he noticed the briar bush on his late wife's grave, and he knew that he was ready. His counselors smirked. They knew just the woman. Clid wiped the blood from his sword. The war was over. So many were dead. Uh, wait for the counselors to bury the lead on that one. The counselors said that love plays by its own rules. It didn't respect kingdom boundaries, or previous or current marriages, or hundreds of warriors willing to give up their lives in defense of their king and queen. <laughs> love was funny like that. Clid said, uh, well, win-win. Well, win-win for him. Two wins. He killed King Dogged and took his wife for one and got all of his lands for two. That was really more of a win-win-lose because King Dogged was very dead. Such are the ways of love. The counselor shook his head with a smirk. He was truly an old romantic. And yeah, the woman the counselor had in mind was, well, she wasn't named in the story, but she was married. Maybe because of love. Maybe because the king's advisors wanted the man's lands, we don't really know. But according to the story... That's what happened. King Clid attacked a neighbor and took his lands and his wife. The king brought her back home and she was maybe happy? Probably not. I mean, you don't go seeking out the services of a sinister-looking witch if things are going really great in your life and marriage. Toothless old hag who lives in the town? The new queen whispered to the woman the story calls the toothless old hag who lived in the town. The woman who lived in the town rolled her eyes. Hi! It would be great if the queen didn't define her by her age or lack of dental care, but the kingdom could literally have her executed for talking back, so hello. 
How could she help? The queen said, well, she had to know, did the king have any children? The witch nodded, oh yeah, definitely. The queen bowed to the witch. She stood in awe of the toothless old hag's powers. The witch said she still wasn't loving that name. Also, there weren't any particular powers, it was just knowing the pig guy. But okay, sure, whatever. Woo, spooky witch powers, be afraid. Why are you hiding a child from me? The queen accused when she returned to the fortress. King Clid said, uh, who was hiding? They had been married for all of ten minutes and she literally never asked. Everyone knew. Then you'll bring him to the castle, the queen demanded. The king shrugged. Sure, yeah. He waited for some messengers to go get the kid from the pig guy. The queen rubbed her hands together. Yes. Her plan was working. Her plan to marry the step-siblings, her daughter from her first marriage and her stepson to one another. Ew, the king said. Her plan was gross. Yeah, ew, Prince Kilhook said after he was settled in in the court of his father. Also, I'm like 12. I'm not old enough to marry. <laughs> if there's anything that's true about royal marriages in the Middle Ages, it's that everyone is old enough to marry, the queen said, but then refocused back on her daughter, who also isn't named. You don't want to marry her? You think you're too good for her? No one is too good for her. I have noblemen breaking down my door to marry her, Kilhook's stepmother said. No, it's just that she's my sister, kind of, Kilhook replied, still grimacing. Heavy on the kind of, the stepmother clarified. She was a stepsister, no blood relation. Kind of some relation, though, Kilhook said. Yeah, he was sorry, but he had to pass. Pass? You're going to pass? The stepmother grew serious. Yeah. Sorry? Oh, not as sorry as you're going to be. You'll move on, though. You'll love Owen. The stepmother smiled. Kilhook said he didn't understand. Was she cursing him with loving someone? The stepmother said he would see. He would fall in love with her starting now, actually. Kilhook laughed. Uh, okay, he... <laughs> hmm. The stepmother grinned as she saw his face change. It was shock, then delight, then... Then pain. Then his face became flushed and warm. He, he had to find her. He loved her. What was this? What was happening to his body? The king, who heard the commotion, came into the room. Oh, that's, that's just puberty. No, it's not. It's a curse, the queen cackled. I mean, kind of, right? The king laughed. Owen, Owen, I must find Owen, Kilhook said. Kilhook's father asked, who? Is Owen? I don't know. Kilhook shook his father by the man's anachronistic lapels before he broke down weeping. The king said, Okay, hold on. There was a simple solution here. Arthur. Kilhook looked up. Arthur? The great Welsh king? Yeah, he's your cousin. The king put his hands on his hips. Just go to him and he'll help you find this mystery woman. Kilhook was beside himself with happiness. He thanked his father. His father said, don't thank him yet. 
thank him later and a lot more after their adventurer dress-up party. And they did. He outfitted Killhook in armor, gave him a gleaming gray horse with a golden saddle that couldn't have been comfortable for the horse or the rider, and a battle axe so sharp that it would, quote, draw blood from the wind. Two dogs ran in front of him, and the horse's gait was so smooth that Killhook's hair didn't even bounce. You shall not pass. Killhook heard as he approached the gate, the city thronging around him. The story says Arthur's court at this time of the year was either in Cornwall or Devon. Apart from the sons of lawful kings or a craftsman, no one was getting into the castle during feast time. Open the gate, Killhook pointed his battle axe. The guard said, look, can the traveler just chill out, please? He said that knife had gone into meat and drink into horns. There was a hostel down the road, so there was no reason for Killhook to get so worked up. Look, the guy was just doing his job. Killhook threatened with stuff that I'm not sure he had any business threatening. There was the standard stuff, like he would dishonor the guard, but then there was over-the-top magical stuff, like he would shout so loud that every pregnant woman in the city would miscarry, and those not pregnant would never be able to become pregnant. The guard did not need this. He said he was one of the earliest characters associated with King Arthur in the legends, but also has a name that I can't begin to pronounce, so I just put it in the show notes. He also didn't want to be indirectly responsible for whatever it was this kid could or could not do. He was going to go run it by his boss, Kai. The guard returned. Welp, Killhook was good to go. Wait, really? Killhook said it was that easy? Yep, I don't get it, the guard said. But then again, I don't make the laws, I just enforce them. Not in this instance, though, I guess. Head on in. He pointed back toward the fortress and its grand hall. At the end of the hall of rowdy, drinking warriors sat their king and warlord. Grizzled and grinning, he downed a horn of ale. What? Killhook asked. The hall stopped, and Arthur belched and looked at the kid who just walked in. He smirked and waited for Killhook to come on up. Killhook passed rough-hewn tables of shouts and laughs until he stood below King Arthur. You look confused, Arthur growled, then laughed. I was expecting something else, Killhook admitted. King Arthur stroked his lengthy, curly, dark beard. <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot. Killhook probably thought he was a weaker, more indecisive, oftentimes cuckolded king, right? Killhook said, well, I mean, <laughs> Arthur said it. Arthur slapped his knee and ale dribbled down his beard from his horn. Yeah, that sounded like his English or French versions. Killhook was in Welsh King Arthur's court right now. Killhook said, well, the story puts the location of King Arthur's court in Cornwall or possibly Devon, but there was no stopping Welsh King Arthur. Arthur doesn't come from Artorius, the beleaguered Roman general here, Welsh King Arthur said. It means bear king. Welsh King Arthur's knights aren't needlessly defending fords or fighting amongst themselves. Welsh King Arthur's boys have superpowers. Arthur high-fived Gawain, here named Gwalchme. Yeah, Welsh King Arthur's all about the three Fs. Arthur held up his three fingers. Fighting, feasting, and fun times with friends. Killhook thought that last one was going somewhere else. Yep. Fun, uncomplicated adventures not burdened by their own continuity here. Just epic battles that border on the mythological for us. I fought a guy who turned into a mountain. Maybe I'll turn into a mountain. I don't know. 
Welsh King Arthur high-fived his bros and dipped Welsh Guinevere for a kiss which she was totally into in a relationship that was intense and beautiful and completely committed. Isn't every King Arthur Welsh King Arthur? Kilhook asked. Arthur pointed with a wink. You know it. Now, what could he do for this kid? King Arthur said if it's in his power to give and it isn't his sword, his shield, his spear, his dagger, or his wife, he would give it. Kilhook said, um, could he have a haircut? We'll see why this kid wants a haircut from King Arthur, but that will be right after this. So, what are we doing today? Arthur said as he ran the golden comb through Killhook's hair. Killhook said he wasn't sure. He was actually pretty good with his current look. He was just told to ask Arthur for a haircut. Um, why was he told to ask Arthur for a haircut? Arthur spun the chair and symbolically brushed off Killhook's cloak. Well, a haircut is a symbolic act in these times in which a blood relationship is recognized. Arthur then asked, wait, who told this kid to ask for a haircut? Killhook told his story and Arthur clapped. Cousin! He turned to his knights, he had a cousin! The knights thought about it. Hey, wait, didn't Uther's brothers die without heirs? And thus there wasn't a clear successor in the time of Uther or in the wars that followed, necessitating the sword and the stone bit? Arthur turned to Owen, son of Urien. First, he's conflating the fun and relaxed Welsh stories with the later English and French stories. Second, stop. He's Welsh King Arthur. He has cousins. He turned back to Killhook. And he's a fantastic gift giver. He told the kid to seriously, ask anything of him and he would grant it. Killhook's heart fluttered. Um, the court chuckled. Oh, they knew what this was. Killhook had a crush. Killhook said, yeah, her name was Olwen, daughter of Yuspadatim Bankau. Who? Killhook replied that, well, actually, he didn't know. Arthur sat back. This was awkward. Um, yes, he would help this 12-year-old find the woman he apparently loved. Arthur wasn't even sure how that worked, but whatever. Just give him a few weeks. Or maybe a few months. Actually, better say a year. Traveling takes forever in this time. So, good news, bad news, Arthur said, when he called Killhook in after the messengers had departed. The good news was that Killhook got to stay in his court for another year, feasting and just having a good time. Bad news was ugh. Killhook's mystery woman remained a mystery. Give him another year and he should know something. Killhook took a deep breath. No, Arthur cocked his head. What did he mean? No. I mean, not good enough, Killhook rejoined. He continued, everyone else had a gift from Arthur, but he, his cousin, still had nothing. He didn't say it but the ache in his being of missing Olwen was almost too much to bear, and it grew with each passing day. Killhook said he would leave, and he would take Arthur's honor with him. About a dozen warriors stood, 
saying that this was a step too far. But Kai, aka K, from the later legends, stood between Killhook and several swords when he said, Okay, Killhook wanted to do something? Well, they would go. They would go and they wouldn't be parted until Killhook admitted that this woman didn't exist. Killhook said, uh, no offense, the brother of the king, what could he do? Kai took a deep breath and held it. Three minutes later, he was still holding it. Bedwir, aka Bedivir, stepped forward. Killhook said, um, okay, uh, was it just him or was Bedwir like really handsome? Kafarowit stepped up next. If they were going into unknown lands, there was no guide better than him. Gwalchme, Gwain, raised his sword. There was no one on horse or foot better than him. He was so-so in boats. He would come along too. Menu said he would come. He could cast a spell on himself so that no one could see them, but they could see everyone else. Grateful for their very intimidating help, Killhook turned back to Kai. They were like 10 minutes in. Shouldn't he probably breathe now? He can hold his breath for like nine days. Menu informed the kid. Also go without sleep for as long, create wounds that no physician can heal, and grow as tall as the tallest tree in the forest at will. Killhook said, oh, Okay, he reminded himself not to anger Kai. Eight days later, Kai shrunk back down to Kai size. He took his first breath in over a week. Fortress up ahead. They had set out, and Killhook was pretty quickly humbled. Arthur was right in asserting that his knights, in this time, did in fact have superpowers. They moved quickly, with Kai keeping all the watches because he didn't need sleep, or air. They passed numerous groups of outlaws, war bands from other kings, or even just other travelers. None saw them, thanks to Manu's magic. It's the largest fort in the world, Kai asserted with no small degree of authority. Come. There's no way this isn't a destination for all the travelers in the region. If your mystery woman exists, someone there will know of her, Gualchme said. He studied the castle. It was about a half day's march away. Three days later, the fortress was no bigger and no smaller. Wait, what? what's happening? Kilhook said. Was that like a skybox or something? We should ask him, Gualchme pointed. The group turned to see a man a shepherd tending a flock that stretched on and on and appeared to have no end. It just went until sheep met the horizon. Kai said that he would take Kafarwis with him in the event that they needed someone to translate. They didn't, as was evidenced by the shepherd shouting at them that there was no troop that ever passed him without being harmed. He had fire breath, too, so, you know, watch out. You get more flies with honey than vinegar, which isn't actually true, but Kai, unlike his later English and French counterpart, knew how to be tactful. He called out that the shepherd was prosperous and, the smallest of compliments, endeared him to the man. And they were good. Kai pointed ahead. That fort. What's up with that? It was super annoying. The shepherd said that that was the fort of Yuspadatin Bengkau. Kai looked at the man next to him. Did that name ring any bells? His translator's face lit up. Oh, yeah. Ah, man, yeah, they can't just go home now. Yuspadatin Bengkau, that's the name of the girl's father. The girl Killhook wanted to marry. Olwen? You're looking for Olwen? 
The shepherd laughed. (laughs) Yeah, don't, don't do that. No one who has ever made that request returned alive. You're all gonna die. Kai said, oh, yeah? He took a deep breath and stared intensely in the shepherd's eyes. Kai, don't... (sighs) Kafarwas said, you have to give people some context for what you're doing or else it doesn't make any sense. It's not threatening, it's just off-putting and not even in an unsettling way. Kafarwas turned to the shepherd. Kai can hold his breath for a very long time. Mr. Shepherd? The trio turned to see Killhook standing there, a ring in hand, extending it to the shepherd. The shepherd studied the face of Killhook and then grinned. He took the ring. He said they were still a ways off from the fort. They wouldn't lose time if they stayed with him and his wife tonight. Arthur's men, despite being actual superheroes, did like the idea of a bed. They followed the shepherd. The shepherd's wife lit up when she heard Kilhook's name, rising and running to greet the men from King Arthur's court, who were helping to get the last of the sheep in their pens. The logs in Kilhook's hands wobbled, and then crunched? They were being hugged by the shepherd's wife. But are you trying to kill me? Kilhook asked. The woman laughed. She was trying to hug him, though she was a little overexcited. Why would she be trying to kill her own nephew? And yeah, she was Kilhook's mother's sister. As the shepherd gathered up the remains of the meal later, Kilhook learned that he had some cousins here. Well, he had some cousins. He currently had cousin. One cousin here. His aunt pulled out the lockbox and set it on the ground. It was bigger on the inside, one hopes, because a terrified young man with golden curls emerged. We had 20 sons. This one is all that remains, the aunt said. Yuspadatim Benkau has killed all the others. She pointed down. All right, back in the box. Kai stood first. It's a shame to keep such a youth in a box. Second, it's a shame to keep anyone in a box. If he were to look after the boy and see to his training, the boy wouldn't die unless they both died, which is what Kai actually said in the story. Who is he again? The aunt pointed. The shepherd said, oh, he can hold his breath for a really long time. The aunt said to answer their earlier question that they asked off camera before the dinner, yes, Olwen did exist, but it was folly to seek her. The men of the fort hadn't seen them yet, so they could still go home. They could live. Kafarowicz spoke up. Their quest, if they were being technical about things, was more to prove that she existed. Really, they just owed Killhook a look at the girl. Killhook said, wait, what? Oh, if you want to do that, I can show you, the aunt said. She actually comes here every Saturday to wash her hair. We'll see Killhook meet the woman he loves and be totally weird about it, but that will, once again, be right after this. If Killhook thought that meeting Olwen would help heal his pain, he had no idea how much it would hurt sitting next to her, trying to keep it all together. He loved her and he had to be with her. Run away with me, Killhook said, getting down on one knee within 15 seconds of meeting Olwen. Olwen 
pulled her hand away. Wow. Um, first, how about a hello? My name is... Then she paused. Oh, Killhook. Killhook smiled. Now, would she marry him and run away with him? Owen said, look, she was flattered. She was. She also made a promise. She swore to her father that she would not leave without consulting him because, well, the prophecy. You see, her father would only live until she took a husband. She recognized that him actively trying to fight fate and viciously attack any suitor might make it so that the suitor successful enough to fight back at his attacks and complete his requests could manage to kill him out of vengeance, thus making it a self-fulfilling prophecy. The main takeaway here was that Yispadatim Benkau, the father, did not see it that way and would actively try to murder any young man who came seeking her hand. You're worth it, Kilhook said, trying to get like a taste of the air around her. Olwen grimaced. She imagined a lot of young men thought that. She wondered if they still held that opinion as they died. Kilhook smirked. So they all died then. Nice. No competition. The nine men at the gate were easy for Arthur's men. They all died without making a sound. The nine mastiffs, too. Soon, Kilhook, Kai, and the others were standing before Yispadatin Benkau. Who's there? Yispadatin Benkau called out. His eyes were closed under heavy lids. Kilhook stepped forward. It hadn't been difficult to goad Arthur's heroes into helping him see his quest through. He told them they could turn back if they were scared of Yispadatin Benkau and his fortress. Not a man did. I have come to seek your daughter, Olwen, Kilhook called out. Yispadatin Benkau groaned. Where were his servants and his scoundrels, as the story says? He motioned to the visitors. Raise the forks under his eyelids so that he may see his prospective son-in-law. Kai stepped up and took the forks that were set under the man's eyelids pulling them up so that he might see Kilhook. The giant took over from there. Yispadatim Benkau looked over the group, and his eyes alighted on Goru, the son of Kilhook's aunt, the one with the golden curls. Oh, did the 21st son want to come and follow his brothers? Did he want to hear how the rest of his family died? Kilhook stepped in between Yispadatim Benkau and Goru, saying that he had come seeking Olwen's hand. Let's keep it on task here. The dad sighed, whatever, come back tomorrow and he'd give him an answer. The group assented and turned to leave. Now, as we all do, Yispadatim Benkau kept three poisoned spears next to his chair. As I record this, I have four poisoned spears next to me in my office. You can never be too careful. Or too fast. Yispadatim Benkau was fast, but Kilhook was, apparently, faster. When the warlord flung the spear, Killhook turned, caught it, and flung it right back, catching the dad in the knee. They left Yispadatim Benkau howling in pain, cursing that Killhook had done literally what the warlord was about to do to him. They returned the next day with splendid combs in their hair, as one translation tells us. There's likely a reason for this, but it's my personal headcanon that, after days on the road, these epic heroes returned to the shepherd's house and had a relaxed slumber party where they braided each other's hair and talked about their crushes. Now, when one spear throw doesn't work, 
maybe don't double down and throw the second the following day. Yispadatim Benkau explained that Owen had four great-grandmothers and four great-grandfathers, and they all had to be consulted. He told the group to come back after lunch, but when they turned around, he threw the second spear. Manu caught it, threw it, and impaled Yispadatim Benkau through the chest. The giant complained that that smarted, and the heroes left for the day. On the third day, he again threw a spear, and again, Kilhook caught it and threw it back. This time, it went straight through an eye. On the fourth day, the group returned, confident that they'd start making some progress, because the warlord was out of poisoned spears. And they did. Yispadatim Benkau waved Kilhook up to the throne, and said that he was persistent. None had survived up to this point, and if he wanted to marry Olwen, he could, after he retrieved what Yispadatim Benkau asked of him. Name it. Kilhook got directly to the point. It implies that the thing Yispadatim Benkau wanted was singular. It was not. It was actually many, 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 many things. The adventures of the group sound amazing. The tasks that Yispadatim Benkau set before them were as mundane as preparing a field to grow things in one night to hunting down a king that had been turned into a boar and ripping his razor tusk from his head while he was still alive, because that was the only way Yispadatim Benkau could shave. He wanted beard balm, but that was actually witch blood taken from a witch who had gone to the underworld, but it could only be held in a horn stolen from a mythological dwarf. There was making a leash from a mad king's beard, but the hair had to be plucked one by one while he was still alive, or else it would be too brittle, and it would snap when the dogs the men were tasked with stealing would pull. Those would be used to hunt the man who had the comb needed to straighten out Yispadatim Benkau's beard for the wedding. For the feast, there was a cauldron that would not boil for cowards, a harp that played itself, and birds that could raise the dead. All these could not be forced from their owners, but they would also not give them up willingly. The list is fantastically creative, and unfortunately, most of the quests are completely lost. It had been a long few years, but it was over. They had wrestled hags and taken their warm blood. They had lured kings to feasts and buried their feet, plucking out their beards. They had hunted pigs across Ireland, sparking a war that destroyed a third of the island. They returned to Cornwall and to Arthur's court, enlisting the king's help. And he had lost warriors. Manu had been injured by a poisoned spear and would never be the same again. Kai abandoned his post for a time. The losses were so great. But they had done it. They had gained every item on the list. Kilhook called the warriors to him. Everyone who wished to harm Yispadatim Benkau should follow. They were going to see the king of the giants. Everyone listened, and everyone followed. The gate was empty. Yispadatim Benkau was alone. Olwen was at the shepherd's house. The giant dad propped his eyelids up with a forked stick and looked on the treasures. I think it's time that you shaved my beard for the wedding, Yispadatim Benkau said to his future son-in-law. Kilhook did. Out of anger, the story tells us, he didn't just shave the giant, but skinned him. Blood dripping, Kilhook asked if he could have Olwen's hand. Yispadatim Benkau laughed. He sighed. Did 
Killhook know why he had such a long list? Because you're a psychopath? Killhook asked. Yispadat and Benkow laughed again. No, well, a little. But he had that list because he loved his daughter. The Spears were one thing. The man who married his girl needed to be fast on his feet in battle, sure. But he also needed to be strong, smart. And all those things, they were impossible for one man to obtain. But Killhook wasn't one man. The giant dad gestured to the room, to the greatest warriors of the age that Killhook had assembled. He had strength, yes, but also statecraft, prudence, patience. These were all important. But what was the most important thing of all? Love. That Killhook would do all of this for the love of his daughter, Olwen. That he would keep at it for years. And he did. Yes. He would be proud to call Killhook's son. And he knew that he was leaving his girl in only the best hands. That was what all this was for, after all. Right, Guru? Killhook turned to see Guru, the final son of his aunt, burning with rage. It's time for me to go. Yispadatim Ben Kao rose from the throne. This was his final lesson to his daughter's new husband. Actions have consequences. Yispadatim Ben Kao bowed before Guru, and the whole hall listened in silence as Guru beat him for the deaths of 20 of his brothers. When Yispadatim Ben Kao could no longer kneel, Guru dragged him by his hair, took him out to the courtyard, and beheaded him. Kilhook and Olwen married in a quiet ceremony. And as long as they both lived, the story tells us that they only loved each other. If you want to see all the quests, I posted the original story on the site. It's really too bad that most of the story was lost, because I would have loved to do a 17-part series on a giant king's beard care routine. Next week, we're going to be back in Greek myth. It's Athena's turn on our trip through the Olympian roster, and we'll see how it can be tragically difficult to be a rule follower. Creature this time is the Hydrus from Roman folklore research. It also burst onto the scene for Christian folklore in the Middle Ages. The Hydrus sounds familiar. That's because it's a multi headed water snake that sometimes got confused for the Lernian Hydra, the mythical creature Heracles fought. It probably loved and hated that comparison. Loved because it was like being confused for a celebrity, but when it got closer to people walking on the shores of the Nile River where it lived, the humans could see that the Hydrus was just a smaller, three-headed snake. And despite having their clubs ready, so they could enter legend themselves, the people would just leave it alone because it was just a weird-looking snake and its life was sad enough. It also didn't have the Hydrus fighting chops, and the Hydrus would regularly get eaten by crocodiles. Notice how I said it would get eaten, but it wouldn't die. That's because the Hydrus had a secret weapon. Well, less of a weapon and more of a strategy of bursting through its enemy's chest and killing it. That's probably the reason the Hydrus never became a delicacy. 
The Hydrus, after being documented in the scientific rigor of the Romans, was revisited in medieval bestiaries, where its explosion from the chest cavities of its attackers took on a solemn symbolic meaning. That meaning? Well, Jesus, of course. Proving that there's no symbolism line monks won't cross to make their point, the Hydrus's explosion from the dead bodies of its enemies came to represent Jesus rising from the grave. I've not seen the movie Alien, but I can only imagine that that's probably what Ridley Scott was going for, too. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.